Good morning, Cop Prairie and friends all around. It's great that you're with us today for sermon number one of our four-week sermon series called Emotions. For these four weeks, we're going to be tracking four different emotions that God has. God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus is the, the reflection of, the heart of, and the face of God the Father. So we're looking at Jesus in these four episodes in his life, not just to understand better the emotions that God has, but to make sense of the emotions that we have as well, and how those both help and hinder us, and how we can grow closer to Jesus because we know he experiences them too. I want to start out with a little, um, a little clip from a Disney Pixar movie called Inside Out. If you've seen it, press the heart button. I, uh, it, was, it was an idea that my son Jeremy had, who Jeremy's like 24, so I'm surprised he has seen it or remembered it, but he said, Dad, you've got to watch this. And Laura and I watched it, and we really did like it. Um, it's the story of a little girl who grows up. Her name's Riley, and the, the conceit is there's these five emotions that live in her brain, and they are basically the control panel of her senses. And this is a little clip showing the five supporting emotions, or the supporting emotions that, that govern her, her behavior. Now, the, the movie itself is primarily about the interaction between two of these emotions, joy and sadness. It, they come out when she's a teenager, imagine that, right? But there's, there's three others, and one of them is anger. And uh, take a look, I think you'll enjoy it. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Uh, okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! <laughs> yes! Well, I just saved our lives. Mm. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not going to get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fake. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right. Here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh, airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. <gasps> How was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Did you guys pick up on that? Sure oh, did. Huh? Something's wrong. Signal the husband. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. We're Riley's emotions. These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag. I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? Sadness. She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? I don't know. Take it back, Joy. Great. Joy, no. Let's wait. Go. The core memories. Ah! No, 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 no. Can I say that curse word now? Anger is a key player on our emotional teams. In a healthy person, it's not like a starter. It, it's more like a bench player, kind of comes in as needed. Of course, unless, unless it's a hockey team, and then anger's like every position. I mean, <laughs> seriously, Inside Out is the movie. 
I would recommend it. So if you ask an average American on the street to describe God, give us a, give us a sentence about who God is or what God, what attributes of God, chances are a majority of people, or at least a plurality, the, the biggest group of answerers would probably say God is love. Because that has captured our consciousness. As people, as people who know who Jesus is and know Jesus is all about love, we've correctly gathered that so too is God the Father. So God is love. But if you change the question from how would you describe God to how would you describe God in the Bible, my guess is the answer would change. Instead of being God is love, once people start thinking of who God is in the Bible, you might get a wider variety of answers, and I bet a big chunk of those answers would be God gets mad. God is angry a lot. And if you've read anything in the Old Testament, you know that there's some, uh, there's some reason for that. I mean, we can find plenty of angry God stories in the Old Testament. There's God punishing foreign armies for standing in the way of Israel. He's punishing pagans for not believing in him. And he's punishing Hebrew adults for marrying pagans who don't believe in him. He's advising stoning your teenage sons and daughters if they disobey or dishonor you at the village gates. He's telling stories of turning, turning uh, Lot's wife into salt when she turns around and looks, looks at Sodom being destroyed. He's telling stories of the man who gets zapped for trying to save the Ark of the Covenant from falling off the cart as it's being wheeled toward Jerusalem. There's all sorts of things that imply God is mad a lot. And so that's kind of bothersome for, for a lot of us. We think, why is God all the, mad all the time? And honestly, I bet Chris and I could do a series that lasted a whole summer. Why is God so angry? You know, in a nutshell... I can give an answer. I think that God had, well, I know that God had a consistent long-term goal in mind from the very first moment we were created. His goal was to create and then adopt and then belong to a human family, the human family, who chooses to love and accept him freely, a free will commitment and a freely, a freely generated rhythm of life. God began that in Genesis 2 with the creation of Hadam and Eve, the person, the man and Eve, and then all their descendants to come. And then in the story in Genesis 12 where he makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, that's when he gets really serious about picking someone in this broad human family to be his, his own project, his own development project, his own family that he wants to adopt and be adopted by. And if you look at the stories in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, to maybe be a little less pejorative about it, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God gets mad quite a bit. But he's not, he's not mad without a purpose most of the time. It's kind of like having a, a really tough basketball coach or a really, a really demanding drill sergeant. Each of those people has a goal. And God's goal in the Old Testament was to create a nation, a nation that would, would form itself together, would have clear boundaries about who was in and who was out in order that they could preserve, persevere, and produce Jesus Christ when the time was right, when the Kairos moment happened. 
So there was a reason for all that anger, for all that discipline, even though to our modern ears it sounds harsh and sometimes just terrible. But then as the people of Israel, as they grew and developed, as they matured into the family of God who understood God and who trusted God, who'd been through good times and bad times, when they made good choices, they would have good times, when they made bad, or when their leaders made bad decisions, they'd have bad times, eventually came the time in the middle or at the end of about half a dozen different empires that had ruled over them, God decided that the time was right to become incarnate, to become human in what we know as Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, from that moment on, God's need to be angry, to be a drill sergeant, completely went away. Because now he was there in person, and instead of disciplining people and being angry at them for violating rules, he became human and showed us how to walk with him, alongside him, and the anger quotient of God goes way down. But there are still times in the New Testament when we see that Jesus gets angry. And so that's what I want to focus on today. Not the anger of God that we could just basically throw a dart at in the Old Testament and find an example, but the one example in the New Testament that theologians and just casual Bible readers have seen again and again when Jesus comes into the temple courtyard and is so angry that he flips tables and he, he whips people and animals and he shouts and he screams this is the episode that I think is worth exploring deeply. Give a listen. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the question is, what was Jesus so mad about? Well, I know you've heard Chris mention this before, and I have one too. These are called the, the synopsis of the Gospels. Mine's a little older and more beat up than his is. Um, but I wanted to read you the, the synopsis, the, the synthesizing together, the side-by-side -side version of this story in all four Gospels. Now, it might seem a little bit a little bit lecturish, like, oh my gosh, he's going to read all four versions. I'm only going to read the ending parts where they're different. Now, what you just saw was the oldest version from the earliest gospel, Mark.
But I'm going to read you now the last version from the latest gospel, probably a generation or generation and a half later than Mark's version, from John. And this is, uh, this is what happened with verse uh, John 2, if you're following, verse 16 and following. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade or a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. So I want you to hear that. He calls it, you shall not make my father's house a marketplace. When I was an assistant pastor in my very first church, I was called to be the youth pastor and I was lucky enough that the senior pastor let me preach a bunch, but my real job was to work with the youth. And so I remember once I decided, all right, well, I decided, we decided, we had, a, we had a leadership team, we need to sell tickets to our car wash, but instead, instead of just having a sign up on the street, we're gonna sell tickets on Sunday to make sure people come to the car wash, and if they don't come, we still got their money, right? So totally holy thinking. And we got it all rolled out, and then I realized, because a council member tapped me on the shoulder, that we weren't supposed to sell anything on Sunday morning because that was making the father's house into a house of trade, a marketplace. Now, that wasn't entirely inappropriate, right? I mean, has anybody noticed that I'm wearing a Coke shirt while preaching a sermon? If you notice, yeah, give me some love here, press the heart button. If you haven't noticed, you're kind of blind. <laughs> we don't usually do this. But, but if I was wearing this on most Sundays, you'd be like, all right, what if I had like a different brand name on every Sunday? At some point, you'd say, Dan, is this entirely appropriate? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of inappropriate to combine this kind of marketplace stuff with worship and with proclaiming the word. And you'd be absolutely right. So the people in this church weren't mistaken. But if you remember, this next verse said, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. So basically, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy when he did this, according to John's remembering. The other three disciples don't have this part in. And I think about, I think about God does want our worship to be pure. He wants us to focus on him and not on the things we could buy and sell, not going on Amazon.com while the announcements are going on, not bidding on eBay while Pastor Dan's preaching. I mean, that sort of stuff is distracting and not a good idea. But, but there is nothing itself wrong with being involved in the marketplace. Most of us are involved somehow in something that buys and sells or provides services. That's what we call our job, right? So the issue wasn't that, that it was a marketplace, the issue was more the attitude than the action, more the impact than the action. You see, back then, people couldn't bring animals from far away to the temple to be sacrificed. That just wasn't practical. I mean, unless you lived in a, just a really close-by village to Jerusalem, you're going to bring money, and then you're going to buy the animals right there in the temple courtyard for the sacrifices. So there was going to be buying and selling going on. And Calling it a marketplace was one aspect of Jesus' critique of it. And, you know, just how I got around the problem at my church was basically, I made kind of a, kind of a handshake deal with the council. I said, look, if you'll let me let the youth group sell tickets and, and you know, coupons and things like that, it basically, 
if you let the kids raise money on Sunday mornings, just wait and see if their zeal for their father's house doesn't increase. Now, I can't guarantee I had a zeal meter, but I can guarantee that in that course of, of doing fundraisers together, they grew more close, they got more excited for, for going on trips, and through those trips, they grew more excited for following Jesus. So the council and I, we came to the conclusion <clears throat> that a little marketplace in the Lord's house was not a deal breaker. Whew, I got to keep my job. Let's look at the other three Gospels. So the, the first three Gospels, Mark is the earliest, then Matthew and Luke, and then John, of course, is the oldest. I stacked them, and I don't know why I do that in my mind. But anyway, um, they're called the synoptics, with eyes, meaning that they have the same basic perspective the three of them do, as opposed to John, who's a lot more kind of philosophical, theological, and a lot more, lot more rhetorical going on there. But, but in the three Gospels themselves, the three synoptics, the same part of the story is remembered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let me read you one verse from each of them. Matthew, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the Lord of prayer. Mark, and he taught and said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Luke, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And at the end of each one, they, each of these say, but you have made it a den of robbers. All three of them end that little sentence with that conclusion. You've made it a den of robbers. Now, like I said, most all of us are in business, and if we were robbing, if we were thieving, criminal, dishonest business people or employees, neither we nor our companies would last, right? So what is about, what was it about the marketplace that made Jesus so angry? Part of it was that in order to buy things in the marketplace, the Jewish temple authorities wouldn't let them use the regular currency. They couldn't use the Greek money or the Roman money that nearly everybody used to buy and sell everything else. They had to come into Jerusalem and tr basically go to a currency exchange that charged exorbitant fees and had really bad exchange rates, and they used that money to buy the animals they needed for the offerings, or in fact, to pay their temple tax, as, as was also the case. So, and when he said that about the den of robbers, he was also quoting, like he usually does, one of the prophets before him, and this was from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. You see, some scholars even think, a Roman Catholic scholar that I was reading especially, he makes the, makes the argument that the temple was not just a place where they got bad currency exchange rates for foreign people, but also that it was a place where they had a temple bank that made kind of payday-style loans to super-poor Israelites who couldn't afford some of their other bills. And so they'd go in debt to the temple and would even lose their property and then they would have to sell it to the temple or, or, or they would default on their loan, the temple would get it and then either give it or sell it at a profit to the wealthier upper class Jews who were always eager to get more real estate. 
And so part of Jesus' anger, it's believed by these scholars, was that not only were they stiffing people on the individual transactions, but that they were part and parcel of an economic system of oppression that kept the rich rich and the poor poor. That's never happened, has it? So, so all these things work together for Jesus to call them a den of thieves, right? Now, I want you to hear what the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark that you just saw a couple minutes ago, I want you to hear again how Mark phrases it. And you're going to hear a phrase here that you haven't heard in any of the other three gospels. John the latest, Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke the middle ones, you're going to hear in the very first original version of the story that Mark tells. And it is this. And he taught them and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark is the only of the evangelists to use the word for all the nations. And I think that's important. It was in the first version of the story. Why Matthew and Luke don't include it or remember it? Why John changed it all together? I don't know. But Mark adds it. And what that does is it recalls the verses in Isaiah chapter 56. And I want you to read, listen to this with me because this is an important one. And Jesus knew that all the temple people would know the verses he was talking about. Verses 56, verse 7 and following. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. What could be more clear than that Jesus was flipping tables and super angry that the people who were his tribe, who were God's adopted family, that he adopted out of the goodness and strength of his heart to become his own special people, had gotten so cocky, so prideful, that they refused to see the other nations as worthy as they were of God's love. In fact, when they wanted to come worship at this temple that, that they had built to God, they said, you know, your money's not good enough, use ours. You know what? We're barely sure you're good enough. If you want to come here, you pay a tax. If you want to come here, you do things our way. Because after all, he's our God, not yours. That, that barrier setting up, that, that desire to show that we're closer to God, we're more deserving of God's love, our nation is more holy, more exceptional, more blessed, and more in charge in charge than yours, that has permeated the Christian church's history and it was permeating the Jewish environment that Jesus lived in. This nationalism of the Jewish people, this, this chauvinism that we're better than they are, that drove Jesus crazy. Crazy enough to flip tables and open up a can of Messiah mad on a people that were taking advantage, not just of the poor, but of the foreigner, and making God 
in their own image. What happened in the temple courtyard that day was the same thing that happened to the temple curtain when Jesus was crucified. It says the temple curtain was torn in two. And those of us who've been, been studying God's word and, and praying over that, we believe that curtain tearing in two is a symbol of God becoming approachable, that we didn't need to, to find intermediaries to take us to the heart of God. And, and, and by making us right with God at the cross, Jesus did that for us. The temple curtain was torn in two. That day in the courtyard, Jesus was, was tearing down an example of the barriers that people in power, that people with religion, that people with, with experience, and people who are good at rules, he was tearing down the things that keep a barrier up to the people who need God's grace and the confidence that they're loved so badly. Instead of a foyer to the house of prayer, the temple courtyard had become a barrier to a heart of prayer. And Jesus was really mad. Jesus in, in the scriptures gets mad at a number of different points. Never this mad, but he's mad, right? Remember when the disciples tried to shoo away the parents who were trying to bring their children for a blessing? Jesus got a little mad. Remember when, when the Pharisee was, who had invited Jesus to dinner was scolding the woman who had broken the, the alabaster ointment and poured it on, well, different versions, on Jesus' head or Jesus' feet and, and tried to shame her by, by suggesting that you should have saved that money for the poor. And Jesus defended her beautifully. He was, he was preventing this, this, the, the disciples' inconvenience or the Pharisees' disgust from keeping somebody who needed God's favor and heart from God's heart. And then, and then Peter, when Peter challenged him, Lord, those bad things aren't going to happen to you. That's a bad idea. And he said, get behind me, Satan. It was Jesus, it was Jesus telling Peter, I don't want to be a barrier. I don't want my fear or, or, or your fear to be a barrier to me fulfilling my mission. There are going to be no barriers anymore between the people who need the Father's love and the Father himself. You know, anger. Anger is a secondary emotion, in my opinion. Again, granted, I have no degree. But it seems to me that, that anger is a secondary emotion. And, and the primary emotions behind it are usually either hurt or fear. Right? Hurt. I've been wounded or I'm worried I'll be wounded either physically or emotionally. Have you ever been like accidentally hit? Even by, you're playing with your kids, right? And, and you get bonked on the head. And for this nanosecond before you're like, oh, these are my kids, I love them. You're like, ah! Okay, I have. Maybe I'm the only one. If you've ever almost been mad at a kid for really hurting you, you can press a heart button. Nobody will know whose it was, but I would do it. <laughs> so hurt, we want to react and, and the reaction is quick. So it's either a, a physical, physiological hurt, or most of the time it's an emotional hurt. And then there's fear. I'm afraid that something bad's going to happen to me or someone that I love. And, and I fear that I'll be wounded. I fear that I won't matter. I fear that I'll be ashamed. I'll fear that I'll lose something. And we've seen that all over America in the last couple decades. Uh, maybe you have relatives who've 
well, what's the word that sometimes we use, who've gotten on a crazy train or a conspiracy carpool, and they believe such outlandish things. And, and, and they've, they've stopped listening to new data because if it's new and it, it, it violates this, this kind of distorted idea they have about the world, they don't even listen. Well, that's, that's fear working. And they get madder and madder because every, the things that they remember are the things that reinforce the fear that they're already feeling. And so it's entirely understandable why fearful people behave badly. Hurt people hurt people. <laughs> is a saying that you've heard me use before. You know, the fear. What's the fear that might have been in Jesus' heart when he walked into the temple courtyard and saw that buying and selling, that selfishness and that nationalism, that, that all, about, all about profit thinking? You know, I don't know. I'm just a follower, a yeoman servant of God. So I don't know for sure, but if Jesus is fully human, I can make some educated guesses. I wonder if Jesus was thinking, I'm about to die for these people. I'm going to give my life for these people. And is the same thing going to happen to my sacrifice? They've turned my father's house into a, into a den of thieves, into a marketplace, and where they're buying and selling, and they're, they've completely forgotten the love of God for them, and they've made it hard for people to get to it. I'm going to give my life for them. And is, is, the, is the faith that's going to be built on my sacrifice going to be turned into something mercantile or something nationalist or something, something selfish instead of being a gateway to the Father's heart? Because that's why I'm doing it. I can just imagine this doubt and this anxiety and this fear overcoming the human heart of Jesus. And he's like, oh God, no! Will they, will they forget so quickly what I'm about to do? And ironically, most scholars believe that it was that, it was that tirade in the temple, that Jesus' reaction to that fear, that on earthly terms sealed his fate. That's when, that's when the scribes and Pharisees and temple authorities began to finally plot his death. Jesus has a heart like us. He has a heart that walked through the world like we do. And he was afraid. He was afraid that God's love and his sacrifice would be forgotten. And sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of what that sacrifice was. So despite the cheap t-shirt that I'm wearing, you do know that I'm actually a pastor, right? Um, I do weddings, I do funerals, um, I sit beside people who are grieving. And sometimes things feel like a mixture of all three. I remember a, few, I remember a wedding that I did in a VFW hall in Chicago, or in the Chicago suburbs. And it was a, a, a beautiful, slightly broken family. And the, the father of the bride was so nervous that he would screw up this. He wanted this to be so good for his little girl. He was a widower. His wife had died a long time ago, and he had raised his son and his daughter. And his son was somewhat on the outs with them, but the daughter was his pride and joy. And this was her wedding day. They didn't have a lot of money. They did the wedding in the VFW hall. No offense to veterans of foreign wars. 
the halls aren't always the primo wedding spots. This is before like, you know, destination weddings became a thing. So, so they're in the hall and the bride is about to walk down the aisle. There's chairs set up. There's a, there's a nice altar and a, and a centerpiece in the front. And right as he's about to, to walk up the, walk his daughter up the aisle, the door swings open and somebody clearly drunk walks in. And the best man whispers, it's, your, it's her brother. It's her brother comes in and he's drunk and, and I can just see the, the father, his, his face turns red, his blood pressure probably rose, and he walks his daughter down the aisle and he's gritting his teeth. He didn't look, he just walked straight forward. Who gives this, who, present, who brings this woman to be given in holy marriage? He said, I do. And he went and sat down and he looked miserable and in pain most of the wedding, even though he loved his daughter and from all I could understand, respected and was appreciative of the groom. After the wedding, as people are filing out, you know, I'm the pastor at the front, right? So people, they all file out and I'm kind of the last one to go. And before I'm able to get to the back of the seating area, I hear shouting and screaming and pounding. And I hear, you lazy, inconsiderate, selfish, four-letter word, four-letter word, six-letter word, whatever. They were piling up. And I, and I went back there because uh, my heart was breaking and I imagined what was going on. And then I heard something smash and I thought, oh my gosh, somebody's head's pounded in. I go, I go to the back and the father has pounded a hole in those kind of cheap plywood tables. He had pounded a hole with his fist. And I went over to him and he's crying. He's crying and his, his, just, he's red-faced, out of breath, and crying. And, and I, I, I'm not going to repeat his name, obviously. And I said, tell me what's wrong. And he said, I'm so scared. I'm so hurt. I did my best to raise these two. My daughter turned out so lovely, but my son is always mad. He's always hurting. He's always poking us. He's wrecking everything. And I'm so worried. I wanted this to be perfect for my daughter. And I remember, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know where the, where the son was. I didn't know if he'd killed them and stashed them in a dumpster or the son had ran away or if the son was at the bar. All I knew was that this big, tired, grown man was a bucket of tears. And then comes the bride. She left her husband at the altar or somewhere. And I heard her talk to her dad. She said, Dad, I know you love me and I know you love him. I'm so sorry that he did this and made you stressed and embarrassed. But you know what, we both know he's hurt and he knows you love him and he knows I love him. And dad, it's okay. You're a wonderful father and you've given me a wonderful life and none of this matters. I love him and most of all, I love you and it's gonna be okay and she kisses him on the forehead. And she says, now please come and celebrate my wedding. And he pulled himself together. I don't remember, there's a lot, lot he had to clean off his face. And he went, and for at least the hour that I stayed, 
he started to open up, relax, and be grateful for the gift of grace and forgiveness his daughter had given his brother, that his daughter had given his son, and that it seemed like he was able to give his son too. My point, my friends, is that we are sometimes the most angry when we are the most hurt and when we are the most afraid. And Jesus came so that we don't have to fear and we don't have to hold on to hurt. In fact, Paul said decades, decades after Jesus' incident in the temple, he said this, these three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And you know how it ends. The greatest of these is love. I wish that kind of love for you in the name of Jesus, who drives out all fear, who overcomes all hurt, and whose anger only rises when something tries to keep us away from his love and his life and his family. Amen.